The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside. A very warm welcome to The Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news, stories and events in the world of science and tech. Good evening. I am your host, Bridget Liberi. Did you know that 90% of food in South Africa ends up in the landfill? As much as a third of the world produced in the world today goes to waste. That is an absurd amount of food considering that over 6 million of South Africans have experienced hunger at some point in their lives. But it also turns out that South Africa, like many other countries that are on trend with equally high levels of food waste. In this state of the nation, in his state of the nation address, President Cyril Ramaphosa said that he envisages that within the next 10 years, government would have made progress in tackling poverty, inequality and unemployment where no person in South Africa will go hungry. The economy will grow at a much faster rate than our population where, two, where more than 2 million young people will be employed and a better education for children of the poor uh, should be uh, done and that they should be educated and the schooling system should also be improved to produce better educational outcomes. Now, this week we tackle food insecurity and we will find out more about this from our researchers who will talk to us about what drives food insecurity on a global scale. But later on, in the show, we hear about theories of making babies in space in this week's on science. And last but not least, in our final story, we speak to the coordinator of a vegetable garden that was set up right here at Vitz for struggling students who are unable to... Uh, to feed themselves. But for now, we go into our science news with Mihe Bango. This week's Science Headline. And this week with the headlines, we have Mihe Bang. In your news making headlines this week, researchers have found the clue to HIV cure for animals and soon humans can benefit. And atmosphere of mid-sized planet revealed by a humble spitster. Good evening, I'm Michele Bango. Researchers from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University at the University of Nebraska Medical Center have created an innovation and eliminated the replication of HIV RNA called Competent One DNA. This was achieved through an experiment carried out on animals which marked a crucial step toward the development of a cure for humans infected by HIV infection. Professor and senior investigator of the new study, Kamel Khalili, the study showed that treatment to suppress HIV replication and gene editing therapy when given subsequently can eliminate HIV from cells and organs of infected animals. The current HIV treatment focuses on using antiretroviral therapy, ART, to suppress HIV replication. However, ART does not cure HIV. Dr. Khalili and her team combined gene editing systems with already developed therapeutic strategies known as long-acting, slow-acting effective release shortened, shortened as laser. Laser art combines the two systems targeting viral sanctuaries and maintains HIV replication at low levels for extended periods of time. The main aim of the experiment was to see if laser art could suppress HIV replication long enough to completely rid cells of the viral DNA. The next goal is to conduct human trials within the next year. And in your second story... 
NASA space telescopes have teamed up to identify for the first time detailed chemical fingerprints of a planet between the sizes of the Earth and Neptune. No other planets of this nature can be found within the solar system, although there are similar ones found around the stars. Called Gliese 3470b, called Gliese 3470b, or more commonly called Gliese 3470b, or commonly GJ 3470b, the planet is considered a cross between Earth and Neptune with a large core buried deep and crushing hydrogen and helium atmosphere. With the weight of 12.6, the planet is more massive than Earth, but less than Neptune, which weighs more than 17 Earth masses. Similar planets were said to have been discovered by NASA's Kepler Space Observatory in 2018, but astronomers, rather, had not been able to understand the chemical nature of such planets until now. University of Montreal's Beyond Beneke said that this was a big discovery for the planet's formation perspective as the planet's orbits very close to the star and is far less massive than Jupiter. He added that they previously hadn't seen anything like the solar system before and that's what makes this discovery striking. Astronomers combined NASA's Hubble Space and Spitzer Space Telescopes in doing a first-of-a-kind GJ. 3470B's atmosphere. This was accomplished by measuring the absorption of starlight as a plane passed in front of the star, then looking at the loss of reflected light from the planet as it passed. NASA has an upcoming space telescope called James Webb, which will probe even deeper into GJ 3470B's atmosphere. New results have received great interest from the American and Canadian teams. They will take the observed transits and eclipse of a GJ3470b to look at where atmospheric hazes become more transparent. Recapping your top stories this hour, researchers have found the clue to an HIV cure for animals and soon humans can benefit. And atmosphere of mid-sized planet revealed by humble Spitzter. This week's news was sourced from Science Daily. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You're still with The Science Inside. Now we're going to talk about a problem that is a global issue, which is food insecurity. So we spoke to a dietitian and Professor Louise van der Berg from the University of the Free State on this matter, and I covered this, this report. Take a listen. The University of the Free State conducted a study in food insecurity in 2013 to find out exactly what food insecurity statistics were globally, in South Africa and among students. The UFS publication was among three publications carrying a study on this subject. Researchers looked at causes of this phenomenon and realized that firstly, the economy crash in 2008 led to the heightened number and high demand for higher education driving the increase in food insecurity. Dietitian and researcher within the Faculty of Health Sciences in the Nutrition and Dietetics Department of the UFS, Professor Louise van der Berg. Food insecurity is a a layered thing. So food insecure means um, anything from worrying where your next meal comes from up to actually going hungry. So we don't actually have the tool to 
predict exactly how many of the students are acutely hungry, where you have to you know, give them food because they haven't eaten for days, because that we see, but we don't know what the number of students are. And then since 2013, we've now got much greater access to university, and especially because the vulnerable groups, I mean, everybody was vulnerable across the board throughout the demographics there of food insecurity amongst the students. But um, we found that first-generation students, you know, were mostly affected. And, yeah, for all the social reasons and things that go with it, and we've now got a lot more of the first-generation students at university. So I dare say if we would repeat it now, the figures will be even higher. According to Louise, more than 400 universities in the United States of America and the UK have food banks to support hungry students. always advocated that it's not just the amount of money that you have available for food. That is a big issue. It's a social issue across the board in South Africa. We are food secure at a national level, meaning we, we produce enough food per capita, but it's not reaching everybody. We've got a large contingency of households that are food insecure. And so it reflects that, but then it's worsened. It's always, you know, because now there are multiple studies out, really a lot, so much so that they've done a systematic review already on, on the studies that are out, all across the United States especially. Studies on food insecurity among students makes a strange juxtaposition as according to society's standards, students are seen as an elite group of people because unlike many, they have the privilege of studying. But surprisingly, many of them go on days without food to eat. It is a problem worldwide. It's not just a South African thing. And it's not just related to, you know, the money issue. There are other things because it's always worse amongst the students than it is in the background, the level of food insecurity. And, you know, a student, if you think about it, comes from school or from, you know, where they come from to university, which is often a very foreign environment for them you know they left the home to come here they say they get the Nisfas bursary for the first time you know money is given to them to do something with she adds that what makes the problem so prominent is the fact that many students leave their parents homes without the basic knowledge about setting up healthy systems such as planning a healthy meal plan drawing up a budget accessing healthier food options and looking after that food. I don't know that the foods are so safe always if I look what my son leaves in the fridge, you know, those sort of things. So, it, I mean, even when I was young, we had a catered food system at university. So each race had a, a catered food hall where you could, you still had to pay for the food. So it was on your card, the money that your parents or your bursary giver, your funder paid towards it. But at least you didn't have to worry. Somebody else had a mandate they had to see that it's actually good safe nutritious food you just it was prepared for you and you didn't have to do the dishes or whatever you just had to go and have your meal a study by statistics south africa revealed that in 2017 6.8 million south africans experienced hunger while the number has dropped from 13.5 million in 2002 1.7 million households are still affected across the country Limpopo reported over 93% and Gauteng at 84% of the highest proportions of households with access to adequate food. Whilst the Northwest at 64% and the Northern Cape at over 66% reporting lowest proportions of households with access to food.
Louis says malnourished people can be placed into two categories, those who are overnourished and those that are undernourished. Malnutrition is undernutrition and overnutrition. So we have the same thing in the same household often because of a lot of other physiological things that happen. But then hidden hunger is the lack of micronutrients. So you can actually look fine and the fact that you can eat chips every day and not be hungry and get enough kilojoules, enough energy, but you will definitely develop hidden hunger. And those things are the things that are important as the vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals for your brain chemistry. Hidden hunger is a form of undernutrition that occurs when intake and absorption of vitamins and minerals such as zinc, iodine and iron are too low to sustain good health and development. According to the World Health Organization study, it afflicts more than 2 billion individuals or one in three people globally. Research done especially in school children and now coming out amongst university students across the world that looks at academic performance in relation to food insecurity and hunger. And I mean, that's why the the basic school system in primary school has a school feeding program is because we know you can't teach a hungry child, you know, and they have to have that meal before 11 o'clock in the morning. So the same applies to students. In response to bad eating habits and food choices, Louise suggests a multi-pronged solution that not only involves the consumers and producers of the food, but society as a whole in order to solve the world's food crisis, especially in poorer countries. Louise elaborates further on how changing one's environment can change or affect one's eating habits. The South African nutrition survey that was done in 2012, Sunhens, found that 98% of school children have a very poor nutrition education, you know, nutrition knowledge. So we don't have nutrition knowledge. So that's the one thing. And then the other thing is worldwide, you know, we've got dietary guidelines, but why aren't people following them? You know, if you know fat is not good for you, too much fat, too much kilojoules, why aren't we not doing it? So worldwide, the drive is now the realization is that if we don't change the food system around us, the, the food environment, we're never going to actually, you know, help people to, to eat nutritionally. So that is something that we desperately need to address. And there's a whole body of research behind that, you know, and it's not just on campuses it's everywhere like you said it's advertising it's it's everywhere so but i always think a university is the ideal place to model do things you know make more affordable the healthy options accessibility and affordability of health options and then well you know students be students they're going to eat the chips if everybody eats it but if you can research shows that if you change the food environment to more healthy one it does affect people's eating behavior in a positive way and um yeah you know so you also have to make it hip A report by the World Wide Fund revealed that in South Africa, 31 million tons of food is produced annually and 10 million tons of that food goes to waste every year with much of it ending up in waste fills instead of millions of tummies that actually need it. What is interesting about food waste, a third of all food that's produced in the world lands up, you know, wasted somewhere in a landslide. So 
But if you look at where the waste occurs, then in developed countries like the United States and um, I think the UK, you know, parts of Europe, half of the wastage is on the, in the food system, in uh, food industry, before it gets to the consumer. And then the other half is wasted by the consumer. Interestingly, in South Africa, the consumer doesn't waste so much. It's actually the food industry. It's because we don't buy ugly vegetables, you know, or carrots aren't perfect like you buy them and pick and pay. They come out, you know, with three heads and whatever, and then those things are thrown away, you know. So it's also a false idea that we have about how things should look. So that's another huge thing. And then the Eat Lancet report that came out last year actually looked at this, and this is one of the things, if we don't curb it, we're not going to have enough food, be able to produce enough food to sustain the global and the South African population by 2050, which is 30 years from now. So we'll really have to look at how we do it. Another study cited by Louise also indicated that unlike the US and the UK, South African consumers are not the ones wasting the food, but industry is responsible for tons of perfectly good food going to waste. The value chain of food waste occurs in agricultural processes or post-harvesting, which accounts for 50%, 33% which goes into costs in distribution, and the retail industry, which accounts for 20% on a consumer level. Stephen Covey talked about the third alternative, you know, that, that there's always a third alternative how we can create a win-win situation. And I think everybody needs to come to the table. It can't just be government or just be the university institution, like in you know, our campus, the shops around campus exist because of the students. And we, we saw it when we had to shut down the campus with those fees that must fall last year. And that those companies actually suffered, some of them. So my point is they, all companies these days have a social responsibility charter, actually, so that you know, they could give something back because the students support them. And I'm sure one can work out a win-win situation. You know, give some discount to the students, but they get the student business then and maybe, you know, get some rebate. Food waste is becoming a more important item on the government's agenda and the South African government is a signatory to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals targets, which targets a 12.3 goal to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030. Given this level of commitment, one would expect to find examples of food waste reduction initiatives in South Africa or in legislation to that effect. However, few interventions could be found and this was according to the WWF's findings. Now, up next, we are going to find out how scientists have concluded that if there were to be an an apocalypse on Earth someday, how the human race could be saved by preserving sperm for use in space. Later on in Unscience. This is the Science Inside. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. It's that time for Unscience where we look at the stranger side of research, where we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time and money on. And this week's Unscience is a bit of a weird one. So what do you have for us in Unscience this week, Mike? I need to tell you something. Something rare, but will blow your mind. Really? Talk to me. Okay. So it's basically something about human sperm retaining its viability in space. 
wait, hold a minute. Now you're saying that science has proven that male sperm can remain viable in space while it's floating somewhere in mm, the atmosphere? That's right. Okay. That's right. A study reported at the 35th annual meeting of ESHRE shows there's little difference between frozen sperm found in microgravity, sorry, and those that are found normally on the ground. What do you mean by microgravity? Okay, basically, microgravity is a space with low or weak gravity such as space. So, new research presented by Dr. Monsterrarat Boda from uh, Dexas Women's Health in Barcelona, who worked with microgravity engineers from the Polytechnic University in Barcelona, concluded that we could take sperm samples to space and they wouldn't be affected by an inch. But now, how was this proven? Okay, listen, Brie. This study was performed using a small training aircraft, which provides a short-duration hyperactivity exposure. This aircraft, overall obtained from 10 healthy donors, were analyzed after exposure to different microgravities found in space and ground gravity. The sperm was analyzed for fertility concentration, motility, vitality, morphology, and DNA fragmentation. And there was no difference between these sperms. So you're saying reproduction could be possible inside and outside of space. As long as it's, it remains intact and then it's kept in a good container, it could still be viable? Yep, yep, yep. That's what the facts say. Soon we'll be making babies in space. Creepy if you ask me. So you're saying this all has been confirmed and proven to be true? Yes. Dr. Buddha says this was a preliminary study so far and her next group will move on to validating the results and eventually use larger sperm samples, longer periods of microgravity and even fresh sperm. So all those theories that humankind would, you know, cease to exist once in space or Earth's uh, resources are depleted, would be reassured that knowing human sperm could remain viable even out of space. Yep, it's unusual. It's unlikely. And science. Unusual indeed. But thank you so much for giving us that report. I don't know when we'll be using viable sperm that has been tested and proven to be viable in space, but we hope that it will save future human generations, don't you think? Ah, definitely. We hope so. Okay, thank you very much, Mikle. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. I am Bridget LeBerry and we go next into an interview with Jane Cherry from the Cooperative and Policy Alternative Center in short COPEC here at Vitz and we will find out more about their vegetable garden that they have established here uh, at Vitz. So we go into the story right now and we find out from her about how this vegetable garden is feeding um, a couple of students here at Vitz, but obviously this garden is not uh, something that has been publicized, so you're hearing it for the very first time here on the Science Inside. I'm Jane Shree from the Cooperative and Policy Alternative Centre, COPAC, um, and we have an agreement with Vitz University to set up a food sovereignty centre at Vitz, and key part of that centre is to establish food gardens on campus, and the idea of the centre is to create zero hunger on campus, so 
seafood gardens will directly serve hungry students at this. And then these food gardens, how does one get access to them or how does a student participate? So we are working with the WCCO, the Citizenship and Community Outreach, which is based at the sanctuary buildings between the, I think it's the rugby and the cricket field in East Campus. They are one of our key contacts because we, we're not based on campus. And, and then there's also a student group called Inala who's actually managing the volunteering. So if anyone is interested, they could just, I guess, pop me an email or a message or just stop by at the WCCO. And it's open to any students who would like to volunteer or just get food. The WCCO also has a food bank and the they also serve hot meals. So fresh produce from these gardens after harvesting does go directly to the WCCO and students can pick up the produce there. All right. And why have you initiated this kind of project, especially here at WITS? Because I do understand that, you know, accessing good, healthy food is expensive. Why does healthy food cost so much? I've also noticed the trend that healthy food is, or fresh produce, especially nutritious, organically grown um, fresh produce, it is the cost is increasing with climate change um, so we do a lot of research into climate change the costs are going to increase even more and because we're not going to be able to grow as much um, it'll, it'll cost a lot more to transport but even just the reliability on producing the same amount of crop every year will affect the cost of the food so that will really impact the availability our focus is food sovereignty specifically at and we've realized that there is a lot of hunger on campus um, and this is one way which we try to address it and it's a more sustainable way. So instead of just coming in and giving handouts, we want to really take that control in who grows our food um, and who has access to food and we want to put that control into our own hands, into the students at, and, and the staff at this. Is this food sold to uh, the students or can they just come there and uh, get access to the food? Do you sell the food to other people as well who may have an interest in buying the food? So um, part of the center, we've, also, we've actually established the farmer's market and that is hosted on the last Friday of every month. And that there we are trying to link up with small-scale farmers in the city and close to Joburg so to create a really local food system. And there, um, students organically grow in fresh produce once a month. We will hopefully, if it picks up really well, have it every second week of the thing. I mean, the produce coming from that is for free. So students can just pitch up and harvest themselves or they can go to the communal kitchen and even at, at the WCCO, even cook food there or take home and cook it at home. And what kind of produce are you producing? And let's talk about the amounts. How many people is it able to feed? Three little gardens at International House and then one larger one at Sunnyside Res. So there is restricted access because it's obviously a residency. Um, but if students do want to join and be part of Inala, then they will have access. We're currently growing, I mean, now there's a lot of rocket, lettuce, um, some spinach, but the birds are eating that. So we're learning as we go. There's tomatoes, a lot of herbs, cabbage, beetroot, 
Um, what else? We got a lot of beans. We tried broccoli and cauliflower that failed a bit. And, yeah, students can just come and pick up from the center or the gardens if they get involved. The size of the harvest, it differs um, because some produce is obviously available at different times. But at the moment, there's actually an abundance of produce because not enough students know about it. Mm-hmm. So I was actually there today. And the stock at the residencies, and it's actually great, they are harvesting some spinach and leafy greens. But there's a whole world which is just waiting to be harvested. One problem, though, is that students don't really know what rocket is or what coriander is. So we're trying to, at the same time as grow these gardens, also raise awareness about different herbs and different leafy greens and vegetables that are actually really nutritious that some people just don't know about. Another story that I was working on that is part of this show, the professor was saying that another problem with food insecurity is that people, especially students, don't know how to even prepare or store away this food. Is there another program in which you educate people about how to cook the food as you have mentioned that the students don't even know what coriander is? Yes, so that's part of the Sovereignty Centre. It, it involves establishing gardens, but also a communal kitchen where students can come and prepare their own food, culturally appropriate food, recipes from their mothers or their grandmothers or their grandfathers. We are bringing in chefs who will help us then learn how to cook. And this is something which has progressed gradually, so we're still working on it, but the centre definitely will become a cultural space where people can learn about indigenous food recipes, nutritional values, and yeah, just really experiment with cooking with different produce. We do try and incorporate learning into the growing. So when we established these three gardens, we had workshops to help people understand how to grow their own food. And we're actually going to have a workshop on the 20th, Saturday the 20th, where we will harvest some produce, explain what it can be used for, what it's good for. So there's definitely educational elements in all of our little initiatives for the the big project. Okay, and what would you say are the most difficult things when it comes to, you know, the agricultural side or the farming side? Because I know now it's now that it's winter, it's a bit more difficult to grow some of the vegetables. So what is the plan in place and can students also take this program even further and, and sort of grow their own little vegetables or their own supply wherever they are staying? Mm, definitely. So there have been a number of challenges, especially in winter. So we only started the garden in March this year, and they were going very well in summer. Um, we had quite a few students on board, but especially during the holidays, exam time and winter, um, the, the student volunteer base has dwindled a bit. We are anticipating that it will pick up once term starts again, but just in terms of maintenance, weeding, watering. We have a schedule in place, but it doesn't always get followed. So that's a big challenge. Some of the plants have become stressed and then died. We also had some mild frost, which might have killed some of the beans. So those are definitely challenges, just getting students more involved, getting students to know about it and involved in the process. We're trying with different avenues, but it does take time. There's still a number of students on campus who don't know about it and staff, um, but we're gradually trying different ways to get people to get their awareness out there that this project is happening on campus um, and then 
you asked about people planting in their own little gardens on their verandas. Yes, that's definitely something that we do encourage. So when we establish the gardens, we have a workshop and we hope that people not only learn how to, not only help us um, advert and come and volunteer the gardens, but we do want them to start their own gardens and grow food for themselves, for the communities. And even staff, we're going to work with some ground staff. We're still establishing some dates, but help them, teach them how to grow their own produce in their backyard or even at a space in the and how many people are maintaining these gardens who are working actively on maintaining the gardens and making sure that the produce is growing properly? So we've got um, an agroecologist and our organization is bringing him to, it to give us the advice. So he's the one expert. There's a who knows something about agroecology or permacultural farming and also some of the farmers who come to the market. So these people are in and out of the market space, but in terms of actual volunteers working, rely on the students. And so there's a core group of students for each of the groups, for each of the gardens. So we, we break it up into two for now. Um, at International House, it's the Inala students that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And they, I would say, and, and a watering schedule, so maybe five or six. But then... We've recently been approached by um, the, 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 the Physics Student Council and they want to adopt a garden. So we'll probably um, bring them in to help with that garden. I'm not sure how many students will be involved, but it's actually it's really great that they want to be involved with the Student Council. Um, and then at the, our Sunnyside Garden, we've got Engineers Without Borders who've come on board and they're actually doing a really great job. They're helping us implement an irrigation system. And there, there's uh, also a couple of them. So there's currently about eight working on the irrigation system and some, also some Inala students and various other volunteers. So probably about 10 or 15 on that garden. Um, but it's really been great seeing interest from different groups, especially like Internet Without Borders. Yes. And the, the Physics Student Council just get on board and adopt these gardens. And now that you've spoken about, you know, these irrigation systems that you may be putting in place to assist you in producing more fruits and vegetables, how sustainable is this project? I mean, in terms of making sure that you use as less water as possible and using, you know, safe pesticides and things like that. Mm. So we we use the permaculture principles and two key principles are one, two, capture water. So any water that, first you look at the lay of the land and where the the rainwater would run. And you capture any water so that it's not running off the property. So there we really do focus on trying to make sure that that we're holding as much water as possible in in the vegetable patches. Another principle is, another way to ensure that the water stays there is to mulch. So that's about applying dead garden matter like leaves or wood chips to Sure. on top of the bed to make sure that water doesn't evaporate mm-hmm. and that really holds in the moisture. But then we also want to harvest water so that's why we've got the engineers of borders involved. We're looking at how we can harvest rainwater for seasons when it isn't rain like winter but also facing climate change the rain is going to be more and more unpredictable. So we harvest the rainwater. We're also looking at possibly using drip irrigation so it's not about sprinklers 
spraying the plants and then half of it gets evaporated, the drip irrigation to the roots. Um, and then you asked about making it organic. The one permaculture principle is to work with nature, to not use any kinds of chemical pesticides, but rather plant beneficial plants for insects that mm-hmm. attract the good insects and plant some other plants like onions that would keep away other bad insects. And it's about companion planting and just yeah, mimicking nature to create the kind of produce that we want. Yes, that's definitely something that the students will be looking into. Not so much now, because if we use grey water, so that would be water from the showers, we would have to treat it in some way mm-hmm. or get the students, I'm not too sure about grey water, but get the students to change their detergents because we don't want chemicals from detergents going into our food. Sure. All right. With that being said, um, Jane, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Yes. <laughs> Guys, go back to nature. It's great being in nature. It's great learning from nature, growing your own food and tasting your own food. And come join us at the gardens at Vip. It's a great experience. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you so much. Okay, then. Bye. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. And I am Bridget Libere. And um, prior to going uh, to the break, we had an interview with Jane Cherry from COPAC. And she was just talking about the food garden that they have established here at Vitz, and it was established earlier on in May this year. But here are some fun facts to, tank, to tickle your knowledge or your knowledge bone this evening. Did you know that throwing away half of your burger is equal to a 60-minute shower with a water-efficient shower head? And leaving a mouthful of steak on your plate actually equates to running your dishwasher 22 times. How absurd is that? But these are some fun facts that were um, published by the WWF. And they say that wasting a liter of milk is equivalent to taking six full baths. So you should actually rethink your wastage and how you treat your food because there are plenty of people who go on days and days without food. So we all know that the WWF is all about sustainability and saving the environment. And here are a few tips about um, not being wasteful and watching uh, your your your, waste, your wastage. So they say you should get curious about your food, about where it comes from, knowing the incredible journey it has taken that food to reach your plate. And also you should understand the date labels or the sell-by dates is the information for from uh, your local grocer. Is it not for you um, or is it... Is it something that you would likely take home and not eat? So if you are not likely going to be using it, don't take it. And also, you should also always sniff your food. So don't always chuck your food away just because you've had it in the fridge for two or three days. Maybe it might still be something that is uh, viable to eat. So you should go on and test your food before you throw it into the dumpster because a lot of people are starving. But that was it for this week on the Science Inside, I hope you have been informed and um, for me it was quite insightful to learn about you know the various initiatives that various organizations across the country are taking on in tackling this 
uh, grand issue which is food insecurity but that was it for this week a big thank you to all of our guests who were featured on tonight's show including Jane Cherry and Professor Louise van der Berg from the University of the Free State our team behind the scenes, scenes is production by Michele Bango and tech by Gudrano Serame you can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science the Science Inside is produced by the Fitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Depart- Department of Science and Technology. Good night. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.